Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. On today's episode, we have Dr. Randy Olson, the great science communicator and filmmaker. We have a very exciting conversation about developing narrative. So please stick around. Hey, everybody. This is the second episode of 2017. So before we get started with Randy Olson, I just wanted to cover a few things first. Happy Martin Luther King Day. By the time you listen to this, it'll probably have already come and gone, but I'm recording this and I'm publishing this on MLK Day, and I think we can all appreciate the lessons that uh, we could learn on from Dr. King and moving forward. And um, I wish Dr. King was around to help us to talk about climate change. I think he could be a really important voice in that. So um, I, I think we're hearing more voices come out there, but you, you think of what kind of leadership that he would have demonstrated on, on this issue. So again, happy MLK Day. This is a big week, the inauguration. Some of you are listening to this probably post-inauguration. Hope everything is still okay as you're listening to this. But uh, in a few days, we'll have a new president, and that could mean all sorts of new and potentially problematic and very disturbing things for climate change. And so it remains to be seen, but that's happening in a few days. And so a very big week. Some news. I just want to note that I actually presented at NASA last week. They invited me to come on and talk about the podcast. So I went on and I shared, okay, what is a podcast? Because a lot of people don't even know what a podcast is. But then I talked about what I cover in the podcast, what I'm trying to do with communicating adaptation to a broader audience. I talk about the sort of listeners that are are coming back regularly to listen to the show. And then I speculate on like, you know, moving ahead, what what could the podcast mean? And so if you're interested in what I talked about in that presentation, on my website, americadaps.org, I have a PDF of that presentation. So it obviously it's not as good because there's no accompanying audio, but the slides can give you a sense of what I covered. So check it out. If you have any questions, just please follow up with me. Also, this is a big announcement. I now have my own app. If you go into the App Store at iTunes on your phone or whatever, just search for America Daps and you will see uh, an app for the podcast. And so the point of having that app is just if you're a regular listener, it's going to automatically download to that. And you have a bit more functionality. You have It allows you to communicate with me more effectively, but also allows you if there's episodes you want to share. It's just more intuitive than the, the generic app that comes generally with your smartphone. So it's free, a completely free app, not charging anything for it. And uh, please consider sharing it with colleagues who you think might be interested in it. So it just gives you a bit more control if you're a regular listener of, of America DAP. So check it out. And, you know, give me some feedback, what you think of it. it it's actually it, – it's a pretty simple app, you know, but it, hopefully it will be useful to you. Also, I like to acknowledge people that I, I meet. And so th- this past week, especially speaking at NASA, I just met a ton of people and that people have been sharing – the the podcast it's been re- really great or sharing information with me and I, I don't want to mention last names here but Kashi Andrew Alexis it was great meeting you this week appreciate everything that you're doing Andrew did a big giant dump of information from what Japan is doing on adaptation what was really interesting is that you know not a lot of their work is actually translated into English and so he's over there working on these issues and so he he's been sharing some incredible information on what the Japanese been up to. So thank you, Andrew. I hope we can keep communicating on this topic. Also, uh, okay, so today's episode is with Randy Olson, the science communicator. This is a really, I think, useful, I mean, they're all useful episodes, but this is like, okay, how to sort of information. Randy Olson is a science communicator. He does workshops with science agencies, with corporations. He's a filmmaker. He is not afraid to share his opinion, and you're going to figure that pretty quickly. But this is one you whip out your notebook and take notes. There's a lot of great information. We talk about the Trump versus Clinton campaign and what went wrong with the Clinton campaign. And, you know, Randy's got some really blunt uh, advice there, and it was a really interesting discussion. So my takeaway is that we just all need to communicate better, and that's what I'm hoping to do with this podcast and so on that note, if you want to contact me, I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. But I don't want to put this off any farther. Let's get started. And the I guess the theme of this podcast is that we all need to find the one thing that helps simplify 
telling your science story. All right, stay tuned. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you gotta figure out. All right, everyone, welcome back to America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. It is a great honor, the guest that I have on today. It's Randy Olson. He's a mentor. He's a friend. He's someone who's been helping me out tremendously and author, filmmaker, science communicator. I'm not going to go too much into that because I think Randy should explain those things. But Randy, hey, how are you? I'm wonderful. Great to be here with you, Doug. This is a little bit of an unusual recording for me. We're here in person together at the presidential suite in downtown D.C. How'd you end up here? By complaining loud enough. <laughs> the last time I was here in the Embassy Suites Hotel, it was so noisy that to make up for it, they've given me the presidential suite. <laughs> Embarrassing. Well, you complaining, I don't believe it. But um, <laughs> So I, I asked Randy to come on, and we're going to talk about Coral Reese, and we're going to get into that. But first... Randy has a really interesting story, and Randy is all about stories, but I wanted to give Randy the opportunity to talk about what his background is, and I sort of talked about the things that he's done, but Randy, please, just kind of, you know, give that background. I think people sure. are fascinated. Yeah, the basic label I use is a scientist-turned-filmmaker. I was a scientist. I was a professor of marine biology at the University of New Hampshire, did my PhD at Harvard, and achieved tenure in the early 90s but then developed a bigger, broader interest in the mass communication of science and information in general. Therefore, re resigned from my tenure professorship, went to film school at the University of Southern California, went through the three-year graduate production program, got out, began making a series of films, kind of that climax in 2006 with my feature film, Flock of Dodos, The Evolution Intelligent Design Circus that premiered at Tribeca and aired on Showtime for a couple of years. And then began circling back to the science world in terms of what I'd learned, uh, not just in film school and filmmaking, but also in acting classes in Hollywood. So I wrote a first book called Don't Be Such a Scientist Talking Substance in an Age of Style. By the way, the subtitle of that book is sadly relevant to today's world here in the U.S., uh, talking Substance in an Age of Style. We're going to get into that. Put together a workshop, wrote a second book called Connection, Hollywood Storytelling Meets uh, Critical Thinking. And then <clears throat> a third book last year uh, from University of Chicago Press titled Houston, We Have a Narrative, Why Science Needs Story. That has led to sort of the action plan out of that, which is our Story Circles narrative training program. And we're now running that with a variety of government agencies, few universities and even a few corporations. And it is a program of training people over the long term. The realization that one day workshops when it comes to narrative and storytelling amount to next to nothing, in fact, can even be counterproductive. You have to commit to a long term training program. And what we have is the structure of 10 one hour sessions that at least set people on the direction of starting to develop narrative because narrative is like a muscle uh, the narrative part of your brain it has to be conditioned over time you can't just do a one-day thing and suddenly get good at it so that is what i'm in the thick of now randy does a lot of writing a lot of interesting writing and i'm gonna have those in the show notes that you know you can follow filmmaker i mean things are on youtube and so there's ways of following randy and i actually met randy when i was at the national park service i don't know if you remember randy but of course it was you had this amazing <laughs> workshop where we did improv that we talked about and actually the roots come right from you about America Daps from, from that breakfast we all had together. So I just want to acknowledge that, that. I think that was an exciting moment where we all saw this opportunity to really talk about adaptation. And well, I know a good concept when I hear one, and that's what happened. You mentioned it that morning, and I said, you should do that. And uh, five years later, I think you <laughs> sent me an email and said, guess what I'm doing? So congratulations. I think, I think you're doing really great with this podcast. Well, thanks. And I do want to mention that I saw you a few months later just walking around downtown D.C. I randomly saw you, and I came up, Randy, we met, and you kind of gave me that weird look, and I'm like, this is what we saw each other at. And so you whipped out your phone, and you're like, oh, yes, National Park Service. All right, you, you gave a speech, and this is what you did wrong. That's remember, I put my notes down. And I thought that was wonderful. You actually were taking notes on what I said wrong in my present because I did it to the bigger group. So I remember that fondly, Randy. Someday we will all meet in heaven as people show up at the pearly gates. I'll be sitting there with that same phone. Yeah, and I remember when you gave this talk, and this is what you did in that one. 
Well, Randy, I could come and talk about any number of things with you, but we, we, I have you on this, you know, this podcast is about climate change. It's about adapting to climate change. And I think it's a positive one, but climate change is a very urgent and sobering issue. And you are an expert on coral reefs and it's been a passion of yours for a long time. And there's a great story that's unfolding on coral reefs and it's sort of accelerated, I think, of late. And, you know, I want to talk about that. And I know you like talking about this issue because it is a passion of that. I don't know if I call it a great story. It's a sad it's story. A story. Yes. It's a grand story that is yeah. very sobering. Um, that's a good. <laughs> you know what? No. I'll be correcting you throughout this podcast. <laughs> but we said you would do that. Here I, it, it's my natural instincts to go positive and you're just putting me in my place and it's delightful. I love it. And so, but. Okay, we're going to talk about coral reefs, what's going on there. But first off, I just want to get let people know your background with coral reefs. Why should anyone listen to you about coral reefs? What do you know about coral reefs? Well, the first thing I know about coral reefs was I was there before there was climate change beating them up. And that's kind of an important reference point. So I first developed an interest in coral reefs um, back in the early 70s. And actually, I grew up in Hawaii, ages 5 to 10. I think that caused me to imprint on the ocean. That's what turned me into a marine biologist. But by the time I was in college, I was spending time in the Caribbean. And when I started graduate school, I spent two summers in Jamaica at the the largest marine biological laboratory in the Caribbean at that point in time, the Discovery Bay Marine Lab on the north shore of Jamaica. And the summer of 1978, that place was a magical marvel of underwater beauty and spectacle. The four reef at, at Discovery Bay was it was like a rainforest you know there were giant thickets and forests of staghorn corals and elkhorn corals and all kinds of different formations there was a place that they called um, the emerald city it was a pillar coral that just looked from a distance like you were looking at oz um, it was spectacular but the summer of 1980 everything changed because up until then in even in the 1970s coral reef ecologists thought of coral reefs as these extremely stable consistent, constant ecosystems. You could find in textbooks way back then talk to that effect. And it's partly because the people, the scientists from North America and from England uh, and from Europe went to the tropics. And every time they went there, everything seemed the same, whether it was summer or winter, it didn't seem much of a seasonal signal. But then in the summer of 1980, the largest hurricane of the century, Hurricane Allen, went marching across the Caribbean and hit directly uh, on Jamaica. I was there, there were about probably a hundred scientists and staff there at that marine lab, and we all scrambled for two days getting ready for it, then we all went up in the Blue Mountains, and I was with a group at this one big house, and we sat all night huddled as we heard the trees crashing down around us, and at sunrise walked out, looked down the mountain to see the coral reef, or see the, the coastal area there where the coral reefs were that no one had ever seen uh, waves bigger than about two or three feet on them. And suddenly there were 20 to 30 foot waves crashing on those reefs. And those waves demolished the reefs all the way down to 40 to 50 foot depth. I remember diving the day afterwards down there and it was a disaster zone. The corals were all gone. When you got down about 40 to 50 feet, you saw these piles of debris that was like the ground crew had been out there sweeping them up. It was must have been some gyres that concentrated these things. And then you saw these kind of refugee fish that swam up to you, missing scales and fins, and the whole place was devastated. And in an instant, all the scientists that were there got together the next day and began documenting what had happened. And this is the first time that people came to realize that coral reefs are not these stable things. They have these large disturbances. But sadly, it was the beginning of kind of a cascade through the 80s that was followed by 83. The sea urchins died off. And then by the late 80s, coral bleaching events were starting to happen. And the coral, the climate change issue was beginning to emerge. James Hansen, the summer of 88, spoke to Congress about our climate is changing. And coral reefs ended up being kind of the first warning signal. People talked about them as the canary in the coal, in the coal mine. And that's what you began to see were these huge bleaching events where the corals were stressed. They would dump their algae out and lots of them would die. And that's gone on ever since then now. And in fact, this year, you know, we're having horrendous bleaching throughout the Pacific, particularly in the Great Barrier Reef. So it's, I, I got to see coral reefs before there was all this disaster. And then I've been part of the group watching them slide downhill. And today, I think you could roughly say that the quality of coral reefs around the world are about half of what they were back in the 70s. So when you were in Jamaica, and I mean, that's a rare opportunity for scientists to go and see this devastation just so quickly after the event. I mean, what were you thinking? Were you thinking this is never going to bounce back? Or, I mean, what was going through your mind? Well, 
people were kind of in shock, exactly wondering, you know, what in the world happened. And what did happen was the whole ecosystem there in Jamaica flipped over because the um, because there had been so much heavy overfishing in the area. Um, the the fish species that ordinarily would have kept down the algae weren't around. And so the algae took over. And in 92, so what was that, 12 years later, I took a group of graduate students down there to Jamaica from University of New Hampshire. And that was my first experience with what came to be known as shifting baseline syndrome, which is the idea of losing track of the past. And so the first day we were out there with these young graduate students, this was their first dive ever on a coral reef. And we went down the same reefs that <clears throat> there were now a few corals grown back and a few colorful fish, but nothing like what I remembered. And when we got out of the water into the boat, they were all raving about, oh, my God, coral reefs are so beautiful. But I just sat there kind of depressed thinking you should have seen them back before the demise. And there are no reefs in the, in the Caribbean today that are like those in the 70s, particularly there at Discovery Bay. Um, those are all gone. They probably will never exist again on, on the face of the planet. Who knows? Unless we come up with some sort of restoration techniques through molecular biology or something. But yeah, it's, it's all gone what we saw then. Well, you covered a bit of ground there, but I, I want to ask you about your time. And I, and I didn't quite get the, the, the timeline, but you're, you were at Lizard Island in Australia. Was that part of like graduate studies or when you were a professor? What could you talk about lizard? Cause we're going to come back to Lizard Island in a little bit. But maybe give a little background on that. Yeah, that's where I spent the most of the 1980s in Australia. Um, that's where I did my graduate work and ended up living on Lizard Island, an island in the north end of the Great Barrier for an entire year and worked on the crown of thorn starfish problem there. And I got to know, especially Lizard Island from that year I lived on there, the reefs around there, like the back of my hand, I can still see all the different formations. I, I would spend six to eight hours a day underwater doing my research. And that's why the last time I was there was 1987. And now the reports that I'm hearing and the photos, I, I'm staring at them in disbelief. I, these are reefs that I never saw look like this. They're all bleached out white, dead and dying. And the reports from friends of mine, they're sending me emails are just shocking. Do you want to go back and look? Not really. You know, I, I really don't, given that that's what it looks like now. It's it's really heartbreaking. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Lizard Island. I lived in Australia, and Lizard Island was this place where rich celebrities would go and stay <laughs> on the resort. And the fact that you got to spend a year there and spending that much time underwater – you really should pinch yourself. You got to experience it. It was like staying in the presidential suite at the NBC suites in Washington, D.C. How do you finagle these things? Know. You know? A scam artist. Okay. So you sort of set the stage of, you know, your, your shit about coral reefs and you've talked about kind of some of the things that are happening to them. But I think, um, what we need to talk about is like, why isn't this a bigger issue? Why doesn't the public real realize what's going on? And, you know, as someone who knows something about coral reefs, but in a very superficial way, I feel like it's a decades-long story. The coral reefs are under siege. We had these bleaching events. And it's like, I always think, how are there any left anyway? And so yet this year, I mean, I think my sense of the scientists have really just kind of like there's this oh shit moment. What's going on with that? And, you know, like, we're going to dig into that, but the way the public doesn't perceive how big an issue this really is. Yeah, there's been a, a failure of communication, and we know that. Um, and this is what I've spent the last 25 years working on is why is the science world so bad with communication? And they are. And at the core of it is this fundamental divide between the dynamics of narrative versus the dynamics of science. They are polar opposites. And it's unfortunate. Science is at its best the more complex and more variables you can embrace and the larger the sample size and sophisticated and everything like that. Narrative is at its best the more simple and singular it is. That is the fundamental dilemma that you face in trying to communicate science to the masses. The masses want the simple, singular narrative. This isn't something recent. This goes back at least 4,000 years. We can see this. The people in Hollywood have studied it in great detail. This is the knowledge that I've been working on to try and pull out of Hollywood and bring to the science community is the importance and power of the singular narrative. And it's very frustrating, but it's how humans work. You are not given the luxury of sitting there and rambling on and on with nuance and complexity. And if you do that, you end up like the current presidential candidates where the one that was more wrapped up in nuance ended up going down in defeat. And the guy that was the knucklehead that could simplify all this down into a single slogan ended up winning, and we're now going to hear four years of that slogan. So he grasped the singularity dynamic. The other person didn't. 
sobering thought equating coral reefs with hillary clinton but i guess that's exactly what you just did it's tragic and it's true and as this began a year and a half ago all i kept doing was looking at the title of my first book don't be such a scientist and realizing this is the embodiment of everything i talked about in that book and i spent a year and you you can hear that whole sad story on park howell's podcast the business of story where the morning after the election i dove into what i had for warning signals for a year and a half based on what I saw for their narrative dynamics. Narrative is everything. Narrative is leadership. It is, it's how we communicate. So people hear about coral reefs from different sectors and they probably have no clue like who's organized. And you're talking about scientists being such poor communicators around this, but could you maybe describe what you think? What is the coral reef community? What is that whole universe of people community communicating coral reefs? It's, I mean, it's just not scientists. I mean, who is it? That's, that's probably the core dilemma, which is basically who's in charge, who's in charge of the messaging for coral reefs. And in a perfect world, we would have something like, you know, once upon a time they had with the Surgeon General, which was a single voice within our country to try and talk to the masses about this is the public health issue we're facing. Everybody listen to the Surgeon General. You know, Michael Crichton, the great science fiction writer, gave a keynote address at the AAAS meeting in 1999 that was tremendous. And in there, he talked about this need for singular voices to speak to the public from the world of science. Uh, of course, the science community did not incorporate one iota of his knowledge and suggestions. It's, what, 17 years later, I looked at that speech recently, and it, it's so hard to get them to listen. Uh, but that's the problem, is that the, the public needs a singular authoritative voice that can really guide them on these complicated issues. And it's all muddled up because the science voice, first off, can't even agree among itself as to what the signal is to put out there. But at the same time, it is muddled by the competing voices, namely the tourism agency and the popular media agency. And so we end up with tourism bureaus and things like that, promoting the image that coral reefs are as happy and healthy as ever. Um, and I'm talking specifically about the Florida Keys. About a decade ago, I was brought in to look at the possibility of doing a communications campaign down there about uh, the state of coral reefs. And what I learned was that at that point in time, they had something called the Tourist Developments and, uh, Development Council for the, the Florida Keys um, that consisted of 10 counselors on it or members or whatever. And I met with three of them and they just explained to me, we have $10 million a year. And our goal is to convince the public these are the most protected coral reefs in the world. They are pristine. They're in absolutely perfect shape. And then other people pointed out to me that they use stock footage from the Bahamas of healthy coral reefs because you couldn't find any in the Keys to match what they had. And they also use old photos from the 60s and 70s and things like that because the reefs are so devastated there. But the bottom line is you go down there and the signal you you pick up is that, wow, these are the healthiest, happiest coral reefs. Um, it's in their interest to not concede anything about the demise of coral reefs. And the same thing happens with Hollywood and uh, Hollywood produces big movies like Finding Nemo, and they may talk about the message of our coral reefs are threatened, but the imagery is all bright and colorful and happy. And we learned about this in my Shifting Baselines project. We did a, an event once. We brought in a couple of underwater cinematographers, and they told about how you could edit these shows for the Discovery Channel or National Geographic, and you could talk about the demise of coral reefs. But when they get done producing them, they're going to take out your dead coral reef footage, and they're going to replace it with happy images while you talk about the problems and it's a visual medium. You know, the message that comes across is what we see for visuals. And the public simply doesn't want to watch dead coral reef footage. I mean, I wouldn't want to. Nobody wants to. So these are communications dilemmas that make it very, very difficult to get the truth out about the state of things. Okay, so I, people don't want to watch dead coral reefs documentaries. But here, here's an anecdote. So I scuba dived in the Florida Keys, and I think it's this degraded system. I go there, and I've been on the Great Barrier Reef, and you compare the two even when I was there. It's this amazing thing. So I'm out there snorkeling, and someone will come out. And I had this conversation with someone, and I just thought, oh, man, it's silty. It's shit. There's barely any fish in there. What a disaster. They come out, and it was the greatest thing they've ever done in their life because they saw a couple fishes. Maybe a shark was off in the distance. And so – that must be tough because the tourism folks, you know, they count on that sort of like you're in the water, it's warm, and you're seeing a couple of fishes. That's a new experience for most Americans. That must be a hard obstacle kind of get around that reality. That That is the shifting baseline syndrome. So what you're seeing there is that your baseline is set in reality. And my baseline, as I was saying before, was set way back there in the 70s before the reefs got destroyed. These newcomers set their baseline with what they see the first time. 
And they think, and this is the way that we slowly ratchet our expectations downward to the point where people are going out into degraded nature and thinking, well, it's pretty good actually. But the old timers say you should have been here back when it was in good shape. And this of course came from the fisheries world that coined the term Daniel Pauling in 1995 coined the term shifting baselines. Cause this is what happens with the fisheries industry is that you get uh, entire companies that have degraded a fish stock down to a certain level. And then they start telling people, well, it never was that abundant. And eventually the historians come along and dig up the records from four and 500 years ago and show, show, wait a second, you know, once upon a time, it was way up there. It's been degraded way down. And now we're just fiddling with the last remnants of, of this resource. Are you familiar with any, I mean, each island or each region sort of approaches their, their coral reefs issues differently. Do you feel like there's islands in the Caribbean that handle it well, that they're bringing awareness at the same time, trying to exploit the tourism around it. Yeah, there, there's places, um, particularly Bonaire is, I think, legendary for. I visited there in 1979, and already they had a lot of the reefs protected there. They've done a good long-term job, and some of those other reefs down there have, have managed to protect the, the coral reefs for a long time and reap some benefits of that. But, of course, there are larger-scale issues going on as well with the change in, in climate and, and bleaching and things like that that you, you can't manage against that. So it's very difficult. I think some of the better authorities these days on how to save coral reefs or what to do with them um, are saying that the best hope is for these local um, organizations and things to they have the best chance of actually doing something. The larger-scale operations are uh, somewhat doomed to inefficiency. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about developing a narrative. You talked about, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and who had that narrative. And so I'm still not sure how you develop a narrative for coral reefs. You know, the messengers, the scientists aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I mean, um, you know, we've talked about the National Park Service and you go back to the organic act of like how you protect the park service. And we, we, we don't want, I, I can't quote it. I should. I used to work there, but. It, unimpaired for future generations along those lines. And then I was in the climate change program and it's basically saying the opposite. And we chat a little bit about that, but you've how, you know, approaching, I guess, core reason, that sense of like these mixed messages. That's, that's exactly right. Um, in, in the end, what needs to come across is some level of urgency and mixing the messages up just undermines the urgency and that's a problem. And again, it, it needs to come through with a single message from a single voice. That is how you in, recruit the masses. And unfortunately, scientists want to convey all the complexity and nuance. And then there's even mix up between people saying, well, we can't depress everybody too much bad news. We've got to mix in some good news, too. And then that muddles the message as well. I know the intentions are good. But these are different worlds. We're not talking about the intellectual community. We're talking about the masses who have zero connection to coral reefs. We're talking about the people in the middle of the country or who knows where. And those people really need a singular message, which is that the crisis is approaching. And I did a blog post a couple weeks ago in which I referenced um, the doomsday clock. So the people in the peace community and the atomic bomb community after World War II when, you know, we almost destroyed the planet or whatever. In 1947, they initiated this thing, the doomsday clock, and it's how many minutes we are away from nuclear midnight where all the nuclear bombs are let loose. And that that one indicator turned out to be a very effective mass communications tool in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev were going head to head and the nuclear tensions were rising. And people basically needed some intuitive feel for how bad is it. And they used that clock to say, we're three minutes from midnight. We're now two minutes from midnight. We're one minute with each one of those little ticks. The entire public was getting the signal. A disaster is on its way. None of that has happened for coral reefs. People today, many people still can think, well, they're, they're doing okay. I don't know what they are. I've had, a, when I ran this shifting baseline project, uh, 12 years ago, I kept trying to wring it out of the coral bio, coral reef biologists. Where are we? Are, are coral reefs today 90% of what they were? 50%, 20%? No, there is no one number. That's what you'd get for an answer. You know, it's really complicated. I mean, it depends on what index you're using. Is it biomass? Is it kind of standing crop? Is it blah, 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 blah? This is what happens. I don't blame them, but there ought to be, at the end of the day, a single voice that can come out and set that straight. Okay, I'm going to push back on this doomsday thing, because when I think of doomsday clock, I think, okay, what is doomsday? Oh, that's a nuclear bomb going off. I can relate to that killing me and <laughs> annihilating me. Now, if we hit 12 o'clock on the doomsday clock for coral reefs, what does that really mean for the public? You know, you could call it coral reef midnight, um, that 
they're all done. They're all gone. They're not going to spring back. And I know that we're a long ways away from that. And I know there's lots of healthy pockets all around the place, but I don't know roughly. I have no overall intuitive clear feel. What I do know that I managed to ring out of one of my best friends, who's probably about the most authoritative voice for the Caribbean, uh, my buddy Jeremy Jackson talking to him yesterday. And basically once upon a time, the coral reef cover for the Caribbean was about 40 to 50%. Today it's about 20%. So we can say for Caribbean coral reefs today, they're about 50% in quality of what they were back then. As soon as you try and say that number, the scientists come out of the woodwork. Well, that's not exactly right. Cause some play, you know, there's some reefs where blah, 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 blah. It's all the nuance and complexity. That's great in the science world. It doesn't work when it comes to mass communication. So it's very frustrating trying to get that one number that they push back against, but you know, it's, it's the frustration of you get nothing when you make it too complicated. So you got to try and get something. Well, how do you separate? Cause this is, this is how I hear a mixed message on coral reefs. And so you climate change. Okay. This is so this could eliminate coral reefs off the face of the planet. There's ocean acidification, there's warming events. But when I hear, and even your, your friend, Jeremy Jackson, I just recently read a column um, that he wrote and he actually made the point, it, it's not all about climate change. And so you have water pollution and you have, when I was in Australia, they obsessed about like runoff that are, that's impacting. And so don't you see where that's sort of that mixed message? It's really a big threat that you have these modern day pollution issues, but then you have these long-term reefs are going to disappear. So how do you approach the issue when you have those kind of competing threats? Well, first off, we, <clears throat> no one can predict the future. That's a hard thing to get a lot of uh, climate scientists to really accept. Uh, it's something that Michael Crichton sent to me in emails back in 2007 when I was making my movie Sizzle, a global warming comedy. We traded emails for three or four months. And one of the things he said is that no one can predict the future. I mean, everybody needs to accept that no matter how good your models are. Absolutely no one can predict the future. So we don't know where we're going. But the thing that, that Jeremy says, and a lot of people come around to realizing is that the healthier the reef, the better it could at least cope with climate change. So if we can stop these coastal impacts of sedimentation and, and all sorts of destruction, things like that, those reefs will stand a better chance of surviving climate and possibly even adapting a little bit. So that's kind of the simple message of all that. But that said, what's missing is the overall urgency signal, and that's not coming through. I mean, is this bad? Is it close to disaster? And the problem is, again, who are the other potential messengers? Um, you would hope that all of these big, enormously funded conservation groups that we've got, mostly based in Washington, D.C., without mentioning any of their names, but they are eco-corporations that are incredibly wealthy, some of them. And they are tasked, supposedly, with doing these things. And I think they have no excuses for their failures. And, for example, right now, there is a dolphin in Mexico called the vaquita that is probably going to go extinct in the next two or three years. And those groups still are not running any sort of large-scale campaign, nor will they come together and collaborate when the urgency gets that bad. And so we're going to lose, lose an entire dolphin species. There's supposedly less than 100 of them left now, and everybody said they're done. And the big groups are not doing anything. You want to know why? Because this is not a winnable battle. And that's the language they talk is we only want to engage in things we know we can win so we can go back to our donors and say, look at what we want. Give us more money. So I'm sorry, but they're not the, the messengers for uh, saving coral reefs. And you'd like to think that high profile documentaries might rally the masses. But sadly, um, despite his good intentions, Leonardo DiCaprio just produced yet another urgent documentary about the state of the, the world uh, that came out this fall. And the reviews on it, once again, the the Hollywood Reporter, what's it called? Before the, the Flood, is that is that the title Before of it? Before the Flood, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, the review, and you know, I had high hopes for that because I know some of the scientists were interviewed in that, and I know the intentions are so good. But the Hollywood Reporter review on it, which is kind of the gold standard, referred to the movie as Noble Rehash. And it's just tragic. And the sad thing is that his other movie called The Eleventh Hour, I used to quote the review from Roger Ebert on that one where he said, despite its noble intentions, this movie is a bore. And so that doesn't work. This is also part of the challenge. I mean, as Donald Trump understood, we've got this nation that demands a high level of entertainment and engagement. And the, the form that that has to take is very strong, tight narrative structure. And when you just go through this laundry list of all the problems, you know, this is having a problem, this is having a problem, it bores the public. And you end up with this noble rehash, and it, it's that's tragic. So really, I do think that the only real hope for getting the singular clear message out someday 
is the science community because they are the definitive voice on the state of things. And someday, hopefully, they will wake up and realize, if nothing else, they should read the tremendous, simple article from Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times in November of 2009. We use this article in my workshops all the time in Outside Magazine, this very simple article that he talks about this sort of messaging based on his experiences in Africa watching public health campaigns. And in there, he goes into detail, um, citing the work of, of social scientist Paul Slovic about the singular narrative dynamic that sadly, it's not about the, the large sample size of what you've got. It's about boiling it all down to the one compelling story of the one individual and what's going on. And until the science world can really absorb to basically grok that, to use a term from the 60s, um, until they can really absorb that concept, it, it's going to continue with this failed messaging. Well, I think you'll appreciate this anecdote. Actually, I won't mention any names. Chatted with someone at NatGeo and just kind of talking about how they decide what to fund. And, the you know, before the flood was a NatGeo thing. And the, the, the emphasis really was like, okay, we like these high-profile things, these very glossy things. And when you get celebrities involved, it's even better. And part of it was just like, well, it's good for our own funding base. You know, we can point to these really beautiful ornaments and, like, they're rating disasters in some ways. And when you go to a climate meeting, you'll talk to people there and they'll be like, Oh, have you seen before the flood? And I like to say, yeah, I'm sure you saw it, but anyone outside this tiny little orbit has not seen that, that movie. And so it was interesting to see that, that this person in at Nat Geo, I, you know, acknowledged that those movies have other purposes besides really influencing the climate change debate. All right, look, here's the problem, and this has gone on for 25 years that I've been involved with this stuff, is that film and television, first and foremost, are entertainment media, particularly in this country. And if you're not able to understand that basic fundamental dynamic, then you are doomed to produce this boring dreck over and over again. In the summer of 1989, there was a workshop for a day at the WGBH offices about the show they were putting together called Race to Save the Planet. And way back then, I ended up asking during the day, how are you going to make this thing entertaining so people really want to see it? And everybody just laughed and dismissed that. And they produced this boring series that any given three or four minutes of it was really great. I used to use excerpts from it in lectures. But overall, who wants to watch that stuff? They didn't put enough effort into figuring out how to make this stuff entertaining enough to engage the public. And this is the problem we have. This is how Donald Trump got elected. The guy is massively entertaining. He has deep narrative intuition. And you have to accept that that is the style of America today. And you aren't given the luxury to sit up there and lecture and drone on and on. You've got to conform with the landscape. This is basically a natural selection type of process. And all these people that can't figure out the selective regime are being selected against. And that, sadly, is this community of people with good intentions. Okay, so I think we've we've well pivoted into like some of the solutions, and I really want to get into some of the details. You know, what can we do to save coral reefs? And I don't even know if it's save coral reefs, but it's just helping the public recognize the state and the urgency of this issue. And coming back to like developing that narrative again, what is the coral reef community like? Who's who's taking a responsibility there? How do we know it's urgent if it, the, these players aren't involved? So, Randy, earlier I shared a clip from the movie City Slickers, and Jack Palance is looking at Billy Crystal, and he stares him in the eye, and he says, you need to figure out what is the one thing. He holds up that giant finger. And so I'm going to ask you this. What do you think is that one thing about this issue of coral reefs? The world of science <clears throat> has poor leadership by definition. It always has. It is built around committees, and committees do not lead. Committees sit there and haggle over things, and everybody makes sure they're not responsible for any individual move of the whole thing. I've been on so many committees in different science organizations. I ended up having a discussion with Alan Leshner when he was the head of AAAS, the largest science organization in the world. I was on one of their communications committees, and I took him on on this issue and said, where's the individual leadership? And he said, by design, we are not a profession that is designed to have individual leaders. We believe in committees. And could we use a little more leadership? Certainly. That was what he said that day. Um, but that's the bane of the whole thing. And as a result, you know, committees just stand by and watch these things unravel sometimes. And nobody really wants to take the lead. It's very, very difficult. So I don't know how you get beyond that. Well, I was thinking like scientists just in the sort of playground that they're in, you know, they write journal articles. Who reads journal articles? Nobody reads journal articles except for other scientists. And then they go to conferences that only they go to. And it's just how can they break away? And I, there are some scientists that kind of get more public, but how can they break away and kind of communicate these things? Well, let me make a point right now that 
from this point forward is unlike any time in the past. And it's going to take a while for especially the science community to understand this. We have elected a president now who's putting together an anti-science regime. And the science world is going to get attacked and undermined like never before. And I've seen it in the small community I live in, California, where they had an environmental issue about four years ago. And a whole bunch of people who are against the environmental side ended up writing editorials in the local newspaper saying that today, scientists are no different than lawyers. They're scumbags that are available for a price. And that's going to be the larger scale message, I promise you, in the next year or two as they go about undermining the authority of the science community. And the problem is the science community is so lost when it comes to these real world dynamics. There's no talk about this. I tried to talk to one of the leaders, the largest science group in the the country about this. It's time to switch your concerns about this word understanding, which is what they're so wrapped up. We need the public to understand science. No, you don't. You better start talking about perception because as the attacks take place, your whole public image is going to be at at stake. And if you're not understanding how these communication dynamics work, the rug's going to get pulled out from under you. And we saw it in 2009 with the climate gate incident where a bunch of climate skeptics attacked the climate science community and just you know, spun circles around them. And the science world had absolutely no organized response to that, no professionals that they were consulting with, no kind of defense team or anything like that. And even John Stewart, a couple days after the climate gate thing on his show, just threw his hands up and just basically saying, what's wrong with these science people that they are being called liars and they have no response to it? So same thing is coming, and I don't know what they're going to do about it. Okay, well, I want to go back to the doomsday clock just as a, a solution to this. How would you even recommend moving forward on that? You've talked about groups that aren't doing it. It's sort of the eco-industrial complex here in D.C., but who could take leadership on a doomsday clock for coral reefs? How would that actually unfold? It, it would begin by the uh, widespread agreement, um, the acceptance that we need a singular narrative. It's the understanding of the singular narrative, the power of it. This is what drives these things to the masses, the realization that it's different than communicating within the science community. You're dealing with a different dynamic. And that's the starting point is let's get together and figure out how are we going to mold this thing into a single simple message that the public can connect with? How are we going to do basically publicity stunts? You know, similar to that doomsday clock, look at what they did with the Iraqi terrorists back in, in, you know, 10, 15 years ago when they started going after all those um, different terrorists. To get the public engaged and understanding in it, they used the analogy of a deck of cards. They gave all these different terrorists different, uh, you know, ranks in the deck of cards. And the intelligentsia, the smart people, all ridicule and laugh at that sort of stuff the same way that the whole far left laughed at Donald Trump and his Make America Great Again solution. That's all they could think to do is go on comedy shows and ridicule this stuff as they lost their election. It's time to quit ridiculing these people and understand that this is how mass communications works and quit talking down to the the masses in the heartland, things like that, like they're morons. It's just the way that people that aren't in the thick of your topic have to understand these things. And you've got to have the wherewithal to come down out of your high and mighty ivory tower, get down to their level and talk in their own language. It's not impossible, but it is so long as you you kind of retain this lofty position. So, okay. So that single narrative, we haven't talked about it, but it's the ABTs and, but therefore, and this is what you've worked with tons of groups with. And it's way, I I don't want to explain. Mm -hmm. I want you to explain it, but I want you to do an ABT because you always do that to me. (laughs) You put me on the spot. You say, don't do an ABT for that. And I'm like, You do an ABT with what you're describing right now for coral reefs. Yeah, coral reefs are this precious resource that are not just biologically important, but aesthetically important to humanity. But they have fallen to pieces over the last 40 years or so. Um, and the public is failing to grasp the severity of the situation. Therefore, we've got to come up with a new means of connecting with the public to get them to understand the, the seriousness of the demise of coral reefs. Well, you don't have to go into too much detail, but your ABT, I mean, what's the point of that, though? What, 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 why do you even have that? The ABT is this narrative template that I began developing five years ago. In the beginning, I thought it was so simple. I couldn't believe it was, was this powerful. It's now five years later. It's the core of our story circles training now that we're doing with all these government agencies, USDA, Fish and Wildlife Service, USGS, uh, National Park Service, on and on. And it's it's the magic bullet of communication. It is the magic bullet of communication. It is the DNA of story. That's what my friend Park Howell in the business school at Arizona State University, or actually their school of sustainability, 
uh, labeled it as because it is. This is the smallest you can boil narrative dynamics down to, these three words of and, but, and therefore. And you can use them as a single sentence template of this being a story of this and this, but then this happened, therefore, this is the consequence. And the three words encompass the three fundamental forces of narrative, which are agreement, contradiction, and consequence. And what we do now with story circles is get people to understand that you need to start working with those elements and develop an intuitive feel for those three forces of narrative. Agreement is the way we begin effective arguments, effective stories, how you begin the scientific method. It's how you begin a scientific paper. You begin with all the stuff that we agree on in previous research that's been done. Contradiction is what begins the narrative process. You start a story with a word of contradiction, which generally, but is the most common one that's used. That activates the narrative part of people's brains and begins to pull them in. And as soon as you've got that activated, then you need to advance the narrative, move on with a word of consequence, such as therefore or so, and talk about that's the actions. And these three words are so powerful, they end up being giving you an analytical ability to look at text, argumentation, just basic stories in general. And talk about the three fundamental forces, and particularly the therefore. And more and more people are realizing that that's a really good word to cue the discussion to make sure that whatever you're talking about has some actual connection and meaning and, and action to it by just simply asking, what's the therefore of what we're talking about here? And that's what you're pushing me on right now. What's the therefore of this coral reef problem? Well, I've always liked that you use the Gettysburg Address as an example of ABT. What, I mean, this all-time great speech. It, it's, it's really hard for people in the journalism world in particular, and even probably the world of history, to understand the idea that something new could ever come along when it comes to language. But this is new. Trust me. Nobody's ever gone into Hollywood, pulled this sort of stuff out, and I can track it back to where it came from. I kind of picked it up from the guys from South Park, but really they probably picked it up from Frank Danielle in the 1980s, who was one of the gurus of screenwriting. And it is new, and the journalists don't want anything to, to do with that. But I can point to all these places, everybody, more and more you absorb it, you see it all around you. And one of the fundamental ones is the Gettysburg Address. The reason that that speech is one of the most popular ever and has persisted over time is that it has pretty much perfect ABT structure. It's only three paragraphs, 270-some words. The first paragraph is the ands. It's just uh, statements of agreement about we have this great and mighty nation. The second paragraph is the statement of the problem, but now we're involved in a great civil war. And the third paragraph is the consequence, namely that therefore it's up to us, the living, to make sure these people did not die in vain. So you see it right there. You see it wherever there is great oration, great speaking, and even great leadership. You will see the ABT at work. And that becomes the fundamental tool that we use for for communication. It's just that nobody's boiled it down like this. But that's why our story circles are having so much impact now. And just yesterday, we had another group that we pulled together um, with somebody from USDA came and spoke and talked about how the ABT has transformed, how they're shaping their press releases in this one group now and their discussion and everything like that. So it's only been a year and a half since we did the first prototypes types of story circles, but we've got 15 circles that we've launched now, five that are running, and we've got a whole bunch more starting in the new year. Actually, next month, we're going to be doing demo days with the National Park Service in Colorado on, uh, on two consecutive days, and we'll be launching a bunch of circles out of that. So <clears throat> this is the fundamental tool, and it just takes a lot of time and practice, and that's the thing that's really hard to convince people of, is in a world where everybody's running as fast as they can. And as a matter of fact, a little anecdote on that line, just two weeks ago, I was brought in by the global marketing team for a major sports apparel company, ran the five directors through this ABT exercise and made them realize that all five of them had a completely different idea of what their company's brand was. And as I left at the end of the day, the head guy pulled me aside and said, this is the stuff we never take time to do. We're just running as fast as we can and nobody sits down to really strategize. And that's the tough part in a world where too much information, everybody's running too fast. The only solutions for the long term are to find the time to sit down and think these nar- narratives through so you know what you're fighting for and what you're talking about and what your message is. Okay, I want to have a little bit of fun here. And you've been getting a lot of crap about how you've been talking about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. People seem to think that you're a Donald Trump supporter. And it's, <laughs> it couldn't be further exactly. from the truth. You're just talking about why she lost and why he won. And so what I want you to do, if you're willing to indulge me here, is if Donald Trump was going to save coral reefs, how would he do it? Oh, that's... Uh, you suck. That's, that's a good question. <laughs> Make America great again. Is, won him the presidency. How does he save coral reefs? Um, he 
Donald Trump has deep narrative intuition, and I can go into great depth in that. You know, all these little things, his little one-word insults that he had for all of his opponents, that's manifestation of deep narrative intuition. He understands the simplicity of putting a singular narrative onto each person. So he would find that singular narrative, and he would, not analytically, he doesn't know what the ABT is. He's never heard about that, but it's what comes out of his mouth. So he would end end up coming out with a statement that incorporates those elements of the ABT, and it would be... Basically, um, the and would set up, you know, why it's important. We love coral reefs, that sort of stuff. Um, the butt would lay out the threat. This is what we're losing. And the therefore would have the single action plan, which is we've got to stop all of these threats to coral reefs. Uh, one of the things that just dawned on me in the last couple of weeks is that at the core of a storytelling as, um, uh, Joseph Campbell originally described a story as like a circular journey where you leave the ordinary world. Everything's happy and wonderful and peaceful. A problem develops and throws you into what he called the special world where you're now fighting that problem, trying to solve it. And your only goal when you get into that special world, when you are wound up with this problem that you're battling, your only goal is to get back to that ordinary world again. Because we all want to be in the ordinary world where things are happy and peaceful. And as I began thinking about that little phrase, you just want to get back to the ordinary world again that last word began to hit me again, again. Where have I seen that before? Make America great again. That's how deep his narrative intuition is. He knew to come up with a slogan from the first day that was pure narrative. He didn't change that slogan one word, and you're going to be hearing about it for the next four years because this is pure Joseph Campbell narrative dynamics at work. He's spinning out a a dream to everybody, an aspiration to get ourselves back to that ordinary world where things are happy and wonderful and peaceful again. And I think he would he would weave the same sort of chemistry around the coral reef uh, idea. He would talk about how great they were in the 40s or 50s, even if they were already <laughs> degraded then. But, yeah, that's the way he spins the yarns. So I think if he were to distill it down to a line, though, it would be coral reefs are awesome and only dumbasses would let them disappear. <laughs> and that would be it. That's, his, that's what he's going to go around the there, country. Therefore. Therefore. <laughs> therefore. We're gonna, you already <laughs> lost me. You always kill me on day two. Um, okay, so uh, a lot of recommendations, a lot of things to ponder here, but uh, any kind of final thoughts about what we've talked about here today? Yeah, it's. I think we're we're definitely under siege now, and I hate to you know close on an unsettling note, but people need to understand that we're under siege. This is a new administration that is formally declaring war pretty much on the establishment of science. And I was hoping that wasn't going to be the case three weeks ago or so. But now with these cabinet appointments that he's, he's chosen, uh, he's making it very clear what his agenda is. And we are in this post-factual world. That's been shown this past fall with polls that people literally do not care so much about the facts anymore because the two sides don't believe the facts of the other side. Uh, what's happened is that these narrative dynamics have emerged stronger than ever. And the subtitle of my first book was talking substance in an age of style. This is exactly what I meant with that sub, with that, that subtitle is that we are now in an era where style has emerged. And that's what's happened, you know, is we know everybody knows we've elected a 100% liar. The guy boldfacedly just says he doesn't care about the truth and he'll spin whatever yarn he wants to try and get things done. Nothing has any depth and meaning with him. And as a result, the dynamics that are ruling are these narrative dynamics. And it means that you can no longer afford to just sit there producing noble rehash. You have got to get beyond noble rehash and really find compelling narratives that can go toe to toe with him. And I think the final thing I'll say on that was that I developed an, an index for narrative content based on this, these words and button therefore, and Basically, Donald Trump was way up there higher than any other politician at 29. Hillary Clinton was less than half of that at 14. But of the four speeches that I found for Elizabeth Warren, she was in the same range as Donald Trump, 27, 29, around there. And she's the person that probably could have gone toe-to-toe with him. She's got the same narrative intuition and and voice. Um, And so there needs to be more of a, a development of sensitivity and realization how important it is. The voices... The voices of leadership, because that's what's needed more than anything else, are voices of leadership, and they have to be interesting. You cannot lead 
by being boring or confusing. You have to find your way into interesting. That's what the masses follow. And that's what we need for coral reefs is an interesting voice for leadership that is effective, that's never boring or confusing, that can lay out these messages clearly. A lot to ponder. Thank you, Randy. So, Randy, um, before we wrap this up, I'm asking, I've started doing this asking my guest, what recommendation would they have for a future guest on America Daps? Knowing the tone of America Daps, the sort of message that they have, who would you recommend that I try to get on or maybe a listener could help me get this person on? Bill McKibben. Okay. He spoke last spring at Pepperdine and uh, it was stunning. I mean, again, my index for all these people is um, their narrative index, the strength of the narrative content. And, you know, he was trained as a Jesuit. He's got that ability. He's a very compelling speaker who speaks in an interesting manner, is never boring, never confusing. Um, that's my number one recommendation. Do you know, Bill? <laughs> Could you hook me up? <laughs> we can work on that. All right. I like the sound of that. All right. Thank you so much, Randy, for all the things That's that you hilarious. do for America Daps. You know what I mean. And this was a great conversation. And I hope people uh, take that to heart. I, I'm a casual coral reef appreciator. I mean, I've done things that most people don't get to do. And you you are multiples of that. It's just like this amazing resource, and it's a tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes. And I, and I hope we can take some of the steps to change that. And this is a great podcast you've been running. That's why I'm such a fan of what you're doing. And it's great. The podcast gives a chance for your guests to get into a little deeper depth in what it is that they do. And you're doing a really good job with how you shape it together and make them all really interesting. So keep up the good work, Doug. All right. Thanks, Randy. On that note, hey, everyone, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast. We'll see you next time. Hey, everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks again to Randy Olson for coming on and talking to us about narrative and storytelling and his APT structure and but therefore. Randy is an old friend. It was a real pleasure to finally get him on the podcast. He's been advising me, giving me great advice, helping me with guests, and it's truly an honor to have him on and i hope even if he can be provocative that everyone got a lot out of that conversation i think science communication we have a long way to go and you know that's partly what i'm trying to do with this podcast is turn very complex issues into something that your average person wants to listen to and so i think what randy was talking about i hope people that were actually taking notes on some of the things that he was talking about and the idea of developing these sort of simple narrative structures, it's so important. And sometimes it's not easy for folks. And so you actually have to practice and get better at these things. And so in the coming years, this is going to be absolutely critical. Climate change is this complex topic that the public really hasn't gotten its head around. And it's going to need all the storytellers that we can find to help convince the public how urgent this issue really is. So thanks again, Brandy. Okay, and so next week I have uh, Sean Martin from – she's the Senior Director of Adaptation Resilience at the World Wildlife Fund. It's it's a really fun conversation with Sean. We talk about adaptation as an emerging field. He has some incredible insights on what that means. After that, I have Karen Bolter, who's a sea level rise researcher in South Florida. And she comes on and she talks about ground-truthing sea level rise projections. And so it's just a really interesting story of how she literally – they look at these models and say, okay, we're expecting sea level rise here. And Miami is experiencing it already. And she goes out with a ruler and literally – measures these things and so it was a really interesting conversation you see all these bathtub models of like what sea level rise is really going to mean but she's out there actually literally measuring these things and so tune in for that so um a little bit of housekeeping if you are interested in being a regular listener of the podcast and you can go on to itunes and subscribe just there's that purple eye that's on your homepage. Just hit that and look for America Daps and just hit subscribe. Oh, please write a review. Reviews are take if you're a regular listener, I it but it's time. It's finally time for you to go on and write that review. I would greatly appreciate it. If you're an Android user, most people are listening to these podcasts on on their phones now. And so use use Stitcher, use Google Play, and just search for America Daps. I also have Facebook pages. I have this regular America Daps Facebook page, but then I have a community group, which is sort of more an intimate gathering where I share other articles and I talk about things that I'm doing with the podcast. And my listeners are more likely to see those posts and then they post things and we, there's more conversation going back and forth. And so you can look for America Daps community group and I have to preview to get in, but 
I yet to reject anyone. So please join that group. If you have ideas for guests, I keep hearing every week from new people, literally from all over the world for guests. Please keep doing that. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for the show, please let me know. And again, podcasts succeed based on word of mouth. So in your networks, newsletters, if you're at a conservation org, please consider uh, putting a little plug for America DAPS just to expand the listener base. And that just, you know, that improves my ability to find additional guests. And so I would greatly appreciate that. And I think that's about it. Um, also, if you want to consider supporting, I have a PayPal option. I am an independent podcaster. I've been doing this for six months now, and it's sort of grown into something I didn't even expect. If you want to learn more specifically about what the podcast is and what I think I'm accomplishing communicating adaptation, I did a presentation at NASA I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that PowerPoint is on the website, and you should go through it. And if, if you're a foundation and if you're looking at funding ways of communicating these things i would love to talk to you so please take a look and contact me it'd be uh i think it'd be worth your time and on that note until next week this is doug parsons at america daps the climate change podcast